Well, I'm going to tell you right now. What I remember you asking me is what do you feel that's important in your life that you really could see that you gave your life to? That's what you asked me, okay? I'm Margaret Bothig, and this podcast is Keeping Dad Alive. This season of the podcast is about one word, vocation. It's a word I remember from my childhood, growing up in the Pothig family. When I asked my dad Richard about this word, I discovered that for my dad, it's not just a word, it's an entire belief system. Somehow I have this image of you sitting at the head of the dining room table (laughs) talking to us about vocation, and I, I don't know, but what message were you trying to send us kids? Beruf is the German word for the beruf, the calling. Whoa, uh, I didn't expect this answer. So I looked it up. The German word Beruf comes from the word Berufung, which in fact means calling in the religious sense of the word, calling from God. It really was Luther's understanding of how people are called. He says the dairy maid was called as well as the priest. And that was the foundation then in the Protestant Reformation for the priesthood of all believers, because everybody had a calling. Okay. I didn't know uh, I was going to have to talk about church history, so here goes. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, challenged the Roman Catholic Church because he did not believe in the superiority of religious orders over common people. And that was the beginning of the Protestant faith. It went even further than that with Calvin. He used the term, instead of calling, he told vocatio. He used the Latin, he says, vocation. We each had a vocation and it was to happen in our daily life. So we broke down even the walls between the church and the ordinary life. These two words, beruf and vocation, today encompass religious, spiritual, moral, political, social, and practical understandings of why we do what we do in society. On one end of the spectrum is the idea of religious calling from God, and on the other end the words mean simply job, you know, what we do to put food on the table. And in between these two meanings are a lot of stories about why any of us does what we do. That's what this season of Keeping Dad Alive is about. My 95-year-old dad Richard will be leading the way through this topic which took us in many directions, as you will see in this recording I did in June when I went back up to Philadelphia to visit my dad after being fully vaccinated. Before I play this, you need to know that my dad is a Presbyterian minister and that he went to the College of Worcester in Ohio, which is a Presbyterian school. He met my mom, Eunice Blanchard, at Union Theological Seminary in New York. They got married, and a few years and three children later, they signed up to be a new kind of missionary, fraternal workers in the Philippines. And I would say that as I became involved in the Presbyterian Church, okay, I recognized it had a conservative past. A lot of people were beginning to get upset with the fact that they really never dealt with the conditions of history. One of the places in which they were not dealing with the conditions of history was in the late 1800s, because my own history is involved in that, because my grandfather coming from Europe, from Germany, and also religion, the organized religion, he had no no real feeling for it because he grew up in a church that really wasn't interested in the working people at that time. And he 
moved away from it to a, to a much more economically just questions that he was dealing with in his own life. And I recognized that. But what was happening was that the social gospel was being created at this very time because a lot of pastors had become much more liberal in their view of life. I mean, in the whole Darwinian kind of concept, because they had changed their view of theology. When you think about it, even Worcester was an example of that because it had in its symbol religion and science out of the same fountain. They, they were trying to deal with the fact that science was saying now that we were evolving. We were really recognizing the fact that we had roots and we all had a kind of a, gen- a genetics that tied the whole world together. And that happened also within the church's view of working people. And we were the first church to create a working women's department in 1903. And this guy Thompson from the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church was the one who created that. He understood that they had to be related to the people who were living in tenements. I'm going to intercede here with something else. What comes next is a midrash. This is something my sister, who knows about these things, tells me. Midrash is a word from the Jewish tradition. It's like a story designed to illustrate and explain something that's missing or vague in the biblical text. Yesterday I watched on my Netflix what I thought was a perfect example of what I'm talking about here, okay? An English game, it was called. An English game. And in 1878, which it begins, it tells the story of soccer, which was a wealthy man's game. They, had, they were all from Eton, and they were from the major, the major universities. And suddenly into the scene comes working men out of the mills who are also interested in the English game. And they were good. But the people in the upper classes didn't want them playing. They, that was their game. That was who they were. They had created it. And a mill owner who had come out of the working class, and he had this great mill, had decided that he was going to hire on the best people from Scotland, the best soccer players from Scotland, two of them. This is a true story. He, he hired them on and paid them to play. When this was found out by the upper class, that really blew their minds. That they, they played by the rules. You don't play for money. Some of the mill owners, they believed that these guys were good players, and therefore they wanted to give them a, a place in the, in the history. But that's not what... These upper-class people wanted it to happen, except for one guy whose father was a banker, I think, and he had a wife who was sensitive to working people, okay? He was sensitive to working people. And they were having this, this beautiful tension between them, and he was beginning to get feeling, yes, yes, that's true. We don't have to do any work. We, we, we live off our money, where these guys are killing themselves in the mills. And the upper class were fighting, and they were going to expel the teams from these towns out of the league because they had done so well, and they were getting up to, to, to take on. <laughs> to take on. And they, I mean, it's a good story, I mean, because I got all wrapped up in it. I had to see it all the way through, okay? And they have a special group of guys who are the wealthy class who make the rules for the game. And since these guys are working, people are getting paid to play, and they're good. They said, no, we're going to rule these teams out. They can't play. They can't play against us. This is a true story, okay? I don't want to ruin the ending for you, so I'm going to skip ahead. Anyway, I think you get the point. And this was also in the late 1800s, okay? 
uh, Industrial Revolution and what was happening to working people, I was absorbed in this. This is who I was. But I became middle class because I had adapted myself to Worcester and to the people there. I liked them. I mean, I liked, I had a lot of friends there. And they began to recognize, you know, that I had some place. As I told you in the very beginning, I said, when I grew up in New York City, I knew something about every other guy's ethnicity, where he came from. But when I went to Worcester, it was not ethnicity at all. It was class. You were from a different class. And so I said to myself, why are we not paying more attention to working people, especially in the Protestant faith? And that's why we went to the Philippines. I said, how do you begin to get to a nation that begins to see its working class as important in its religion? I said, that's what I want to do. I want to go to a place, really spend some time developing relationships to labor and getting pastors into, into the whole understanding of labor. That's why we, I had all these guys go to the uh, Labor Education Center, plus the fact that we had to change the conservative point of view. I mean, I ran into that almost immediately when I went to First Presbyterian Church as an interim pastor. My dad is now talking about a time much later, toward the end of his working life, in Buffalo, New York, where they had moved so that my mother could take the job of executive presbyter for the Presbytery of Western New York. One or two families became apprehensive of my being the interim pastor there because... I immediately brought, I mean, to speak at the church, I brought a Roman Catholic priest. He was a social justice priest, okay? I mean, he really believed in that. So I said, we got to get, we have to have these people speak. The church was filled with Roman Catholic sisters. They came to listen to him, and that blew a lot of people's minds, okay? Just like when, I, when, I, when, we, when we moved the seminary down to Hyde Park. Now my dad's talking about the mid-1970s when McCormick Theological Seminary moved its campus from the north side of Chicago to join a consortium of seminaries that had a campus in Hyde Park. It was natural for me to have Michael Harrington come to a cluster of theological schools. Michael Harrington was a socialist candidate, and he was a Catholic who had become a much more of a, of a pro-justice question, okay? Part of my whole history is that the conservative Catholics are, the, are, are really dangerous to us. The 1930s, Franco in Spain, fascist. Mussolini in Italy, fascist. Hitler in Germany, fascist. All three of these guys who had the support of the Roman Church. The Pope wrote the Concordat. These guys were all part of that Concordat. I mean, they, they tried to maintain their relationships during this period with them. I said, I said to, I said to my buddy, I don't believe in fundamentalism of any kind. No fundamentalism because they think they have the whole story. Whether it's biblical fundamentalism of the conservatives who voted for Trump, the evangelicals, or the Roman Catholic hierarchy, many of them, structural fundamentalism. They believe in the church as a structure. Right now, in Germany, Roman Catholic priests in Germany creating problems for the Roman church because they believe in marrying same-sex people 
And that blows their mind. It's again the roots of the whole question of how do you open up the doors? If we're really a faithful church, how do you say that to human beings? See, this is theology now. This is the human being issue, Margaret. This is where my theology has changed, okay? My theology has changed because as I've become more and more aware of genetics, and that Scott even is the lead on this because he says that we're all of one piece. I mean, his study of weeds, Arabidopsis, it has some of the same structures that people have, okay? Scott's my brother, and he's a biologist. I mean, so we come from that. That's where we're coming from, all right? We're coming from from uh, 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 the creation. And when we really think about it, as I go every morning to my, my grandpad and I bring up what what new what, what new galaxy have they discovered? I mean, it's how do we live in this planetary system of the of a, a vastness? Well, it changes my theology. It's a question of how many gods are there that create all these things. We created God here. I mean, the Hebrews and well, even before the Hebrews, all these other people who believe in sun gods and other gods. But the Hebrews were the closest to really discovering what is part of who we are, and that's the justice element. The prophets were the ones who really opened the door on that. They didn't believe in the fundamentalisms, the strict laws, and they were always saying, "Well, you can't. Ha- you got to be concerned for people." Good. And then Jesus, who does he choose to to save the person on the road? The Samaritan comes. The priest passes him by, and the Samaritan is the one. I mean, so Jesus extends the Old Testament prophets and opens up the door to human to the question of the human being. I mean, that's why he, he's still the center. Of, of my understanding. Jesus is. Yes, oh, sure. Mm-hmm. And whether or not he was divine, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm not. Is that the part? Of that's the really, that's part now, yes. That's why I believe that something else holds this universe together. I mean, some not something else, but some power holds this universe together. I think there's a spirit that holds the universe together because how could we have the kind of universe that we have? And how can we have the kind of birds we. I mean, this is why. I mean, when but you there see, are natural forces of nature. Yeah, they There's are. Science so forces can explain. Yeah, of forces, forces of nature, but the forces of nature has to have some spirit behind it. Why? Because, no, no, no. That's right. Why you ask? Because we were brought into being. We were brought into being as human beings. In an extension from the from the past, we suddenly are exploring the universe, We're exploring it in a way that finally is going to help us understand why we're here. So, okay, wait a minute. So you're saying the existence of the human species proves that God, that there's a spirit? Maybe that's because I want to see your mother again. <laughs> you know what, Dad? I, 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 can I just tell you my own theology, which I know I've never really told you, but here's what I say. You know, the question of whether there's a God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. Except, I said, I reserve the right 
to change my mind and the reason I could imagine that I would change my mind is if there was somebody I wanted to see again. You're right. That's how I feel. That's, I mean, that's how I feel internally in my spirit. I look back at the pictures of your mother and I just... I miss her so much. You know, and I say to myself... If only I had a half hour with her again. It's a strange thing to say. <laughs> you know, no, no, it's, it's, it's so, and that, that to me is the meaning of life. I mean, you, you know, it's a question of love and, 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 and your attachment to one another. And that's, that's really what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. <sighs> I just love to hold her again, that's all. That, for me, may not fit into the picture, but so I have to believe something. My dad has a wall clock that chimes on every hour with a different bird song. I have to believe that there's a spirit that allows for this to happen. I don't know what it is, but that's I'm, I'm saying there's a spirit that makes this happen, makes, makes this happen. How did we get from the Protestant Reformation to the existence of God and the afterlife just by asking about the word vocation? Well, a few days ago, my brother sent me a couple scholarly articles on vocation, and I'm really glad I didn't read them before I started working on this season of this podcast. One academic concluded her article on the history of the word vocation with this. With the passage of time, there has been such an alteration, an aggregation of meanings of vocation. The meanings pitch and sway and steadily retreat from easy grasp. There is much more to be unpacked than can be accomplished in this burly striding across the landscape of centuries. Ha! I love that. I'll have to send Professor Jane Dawson a link to this podcast. While I have no intention to tackle the intellectual history of this word, I hope to cover at least 95, well, make that 96 years of territory. The music in this podcast is Phase 2 by Zylo Zico.